This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Nina Instead. You may know me from my other podcasts, Already Gone, Deadball, and Don't Talk to Strangers. By now, you've probably heard that my friend Nate Hale He's having some health issues that caused him to temporarily step down from hosting duties. In the meantime, Nate asked me to help him out by hosting the show this week, while he's continuing to write and produce it. And this week, we're bringing you another strange, unsolved mystery straight out of the pages of history. So now, without further ado, on with the show. In elementary school, a lot of the history we're taught is focused on who was the first to accomplish something. The first president of the United States. The first man on the moon. That sort of thing. At the same time, a lot of commonly known facts from history aren't quite so cut and dried. For example, ask any grade school student who discovered America, and they'll almost certainly say Christopher Columbus. But, point of fact, Columbus never set foot on American soil. And, on top of that, he probably wasn't even the first Westerner to make the journey across the ocean to the New World. Some archaeological digs in North America have shown evidence that the Vikings may have made their way here long before Columbus. There even exists a world map drawn by a Chinese Muslim explorer named Zhang in 1405 that some say proves he beat Columbus to America by more than 85 years. Likewise, throughout history, certain inventions we commonly attribute to certain famous individuals might not have been invented by them at all. For example, most of us credit Orville and Wilbur Wright for inventing the airplane in 1903. But again, that claim to fame is all a matter of perspective and by how you define the term flight. You can find diagrams of winged vehicles leading all the way back to the time of Leonardo da Vinci and even earlier. Just in the late 19th and early 20th centuries alone, there were several inventors who claimed to have beaten the Wright brothers in getting their own aerial vehicles off the ground. One of whom was Felix de Temple, who, in 1874, managed to get his steam-powered aircraft to fly off a ramp and remain airborne for a short distance. But most aviation historians discredit this as being the first real flight, since de Temple needed both the ramp and gravity to get his plane off the ground. In 1896, Samuel Pierpont Langley, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, he successfully flew several unmanned aircraft models as far as 5,000 feet. It was also claimed as early as 1899 that an inventor named Gustavo Whitehead might really have been the first to have conducted a manned flight of an aerial vehicle. Although... Those claims have remained hotly disputed ever since. To this day, the country of Brazil honors one of their own inventors, Alberto Santos Dumont, as being the first actual person to pilot a manned aircraft, not the Wright brothers, after he managed to fly his own biplane for about 200 feet on October 23, 1906. We can see similar disputes that arise with other inventions as well. 
Although Guglielmo Marconi is most often credited as the inventor of the radio, that all depends on how you define inventing it, as well as where you're from. Russian school children learn that one of their own scientists, Alexander Popov, a contemporary of Marconi's, was the true inventor of the radio, while other historians place the credit squarely on the shoulders of legendary inventor Nikola Tesla. In either case, it was still Marconi who gets all the credit because he was ultimately the first person to register the patent for what we think of as modern radio technology. And that's an important distinction to consider throughout history. The idea of who patented a new technology is nearly as important as who really invented it. And although the two things sometimes coincide with one another, over the years there have been several instances where the patent holder of a new technology gets all the credit, while the true inventor remains nearly forgotten. The 19th century Industrial Revolution marked a major time for innovation. New inventions were patented almost daily, but this also created stiff competition among inventors to not only become the first to create something, but also created a mad rush to the patent office. It also generated a lot of controversy over who deserves credit for several major innovations. Take the motion picture camera, for example. Today, it's commonly accepted that Thomas Edison, or possibly the Lumiere brothers, were the inventors of the single-lens motion picture camera. But one name that's almost forgotten to history is that of Louis Le Prince, who evidence shows actually built the first motion picture camera years before Edison even began thinking about it. And I bet you're wondering, why does Edison get all the credit for inventing movies while the name Louis Le Prince is almost unheard of today? Well, that's an interesting story, and a mysterious one as well. You see, Louis Le Prince also has one other significant claim to fame in history. One day in September 1890, Le Prince boarded a train bound for Paris along with a suitcase containing the plans for his remarkable invention. And by the time the train stopped, neither Louis nor his suitcase were ever seen again. I'm Nina Instead, and Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And this is The Conspirators. If you ask film historians where movies were invented, most of them would probably say Paris, where Auguste and Louis Lumière came from. The Lumières were a pair of inventors slash brothers who, on December 28, 1895, astounded the world when they publicly unveiled a device they called the cinematograph, which could project moving images on a screen. There are a few rogue film historians, though, who make a different claim where the movies were born. Some say motion pictures were actually invented in Leeds, England, nearly a decade earlier than the time the Lumiere brothers began showing off their invention. As early as October 1888, a man named Louis Le Prince was already demonstrating his own motion picture camera, and we even have the film today to prove it. Le Prince was born to a well-to-do family in Metz, France in 1841. His father was a decorated French military officer. Although it seemed like photography was a vocation Le Prince was destined for from an early age, he grew up spending time with his father's close friend, Louis Daguerre, 
the man most often credited with inventing photography. It was from Daguerre that Le Prince received his first lesson in photographic printmaking. Le Prince went on to study art, chemistry, and physics in college, and from there he went on to postgraduate work in chemistry at Leipzig University. In 1866, Le Prince moved to Leeds, England, and began working for a man named John Whitley, a maker of brass valves and components. Three years later, Le Prince married his boss's daughter, Elizabeth Whitley, whom he called Lizzie. In 1871, Le Prince and Lizzie started a school of applied art, the Leeds Technical School of Art. The couple became well-known for their work in fixed-color photography on metal and photography. They even received commissions for portraits of Queen Victoria and the Prime Minister, William Gladstone. Both of these would end up being placed in a time capsule set into the foundations of the London landmark known as Cleopatra's Needle along the River Thames. In 1881, Le Prince and Lizzie moved to New York, where he managed a small group of French artists who specialized in wide-sweeping panoramic paintings. This was a major fad back when you would walk into a room, and this massive circular painting would surround you on all sides, making the viewer feel like they were part of the scene. It was around this time that Le Prince began to think about ways to create his own immersive experience through imagery. He imagined a new type of camera, one that could actually make it appear as if a series of still images were moving by showing the images in rapid succession. Louis decided that in order for this to be a truly immersive experience, he would have to develop a way to record and show 16 frames of film for every second of motion. Keep in mind, Le Prince wasn't the only inventor around then experimenting with moving images. In 1878, Edward Mybridge, he set up a succession of 12 cameras in a row in order to capture a racehorse in motion. He then arranged these images on a rotating disc that, when spun around, made the horse appear as if it were moving. Le Prince's first attempt at a motion picture camera had 16 lenses. But almost as soon as he built it, he already had plans for a new version, one that used only a single lens. He and his family returned to Leeds in May of 1887, and while there, he was fiercely secretive. Not even his own family was allowed inside his workshop while he was working. Within another year, he began testing his single-lens camera to film short sequences of his family and friends, as well as images of his son Adolf playing the accordion. But creating the moving images wasn't enough. He also needed a way to project these films. He began working with a skilled mechanic named James Langley to create a projector between 1889 and 1890. One concept they came up with involved separating the individual images and printing and mounting them on a flexible band moved by metal eyelets. They also built another single-lens projector with individual pictures mounted in wooden frames. Several friends and family members all later swore they saw demonstrations of Le Prince's motion pictures projected on a screen in his Leeds workshop. But Le Prince, he never got the chance to give a real public demonstration. In 1886, Le Prince applied for an American patent on his motion picture camera. This patent process dragged on for two long years while he and his lawyers kept going back and forth, tweaking the phrasing of his patent application and clawing their way through other red tape. But as the months dragged on, Louis became increasingly paranoid that something else was going on behind the scenes to delay things. 
He began to suspect someone in the patent office was leaking details of his motion picture camera to another inventor. He was so worried that he packed up his work and sailed back to London. Once he was back in Leeds, Louis beefed up security around the workshop. He installed heavy shutters over all the windows and added extra locks to all the doors. He became convinced there were spies everywhere out to steal his life's work. He was eventually granted a British patent for his invention on November 16, 1888. After that, he wrote to Lizzie, who had remained in New York, and he told her it wouldn't be long before they were reunited, and before they were both rich and famous. He began making plans to have his first public screening of his invention in New York in late 1890. But Louis Le Prince's public demonstration never happened. That's because in September of 1890, he was said to have boarded a train from Dijon to Paris. Only Le Prince never got off the train, and neither he nor the plans for his invention were ever seen again. You see, before Louis Le Prince was to make his trip to New York, he decided to travel to Dijon to visit family and spend time with his brother, Albert. It was Albert who later told investigators that he dropped his brother off at the train station, along with a suitcase containing all his plans and other materials needed for the presentation. Albert told police that the last time he saw Louis was as he waved him off as the train departed. But when the train arrived in Paris, where Le Prince's friends were waiting to meet him, Le Prince never arrived. Both the French police and Scotland Yard launched investigations into where the inventor could have gone. It's notable to point out that not a single passenger claimed to have remembered seeing Le Prince aboard the train. And this is unusual because Le Prince should have been a rather memorable figure. He stood six foot four, and he sported a very distinctive set of mutton chops. He was the sort of person who would stand out in a crowd. Yet the only witness who ever actually said for certain they saw Le Prince board the train was his brother, Albert. This leads to one of the first major theories as to what happened. Some investigators speculated that Albert may not have been telling the truth and that he may have been involved in his brother's disappearance. A book called The Missing Reel by Christopher Rollins paints a much different version of what happened between the brothers. According to Rollins, Louis was desperate for money after pouring so much of his fortune into the invention. So he actually went to see Albert that day looking for a thousand pounds he said he was owed as part of his inheritance from their mother. For the first two days of Louis' visit, Albert did everything he could to avoid seeing his brother. And when the two brothers finally got together on the third and final day of Louis' trip, they argued bitterly. Albert flatly told Louis he wasn't giving him one red cent and that Louis didn't deserve any money. Albert told Louis that their parents had more than paid him his fair share considering how much money they'd already given him over the years as well as the money they poured into his education. The argument between the brothers raged on for so long that Louis actually missed the train to Paris and was forced to catch the next one that was set to leave two and a half hours later. From there, the fight just kept going, all the way up to the final moment the two men were together on the train platform. The argument was so loud and so ugly that according to Rollins... Several witnesses claim to have noticed the two of them going at it on the platform. But many of the prince's family members disputed this theory, saying that Louis and his brother were very close and that they had a loving relationship. 
They were even able to produce letters between the brothers showing how deeply they cared for one another. There's also the fact that after Louis's disappearance, Albert not only joined in the search, but spent a considerable sum of his own money trying to find him. Probably the most popular theory as to what happened to Louis Le Prince is also the most controversial, that the person responsible for Le Prince's disappearance was the most famous inventor in American history, Thomas Edison. This theory says that Edison either had Le Prince kidnapped or even killed in order to prevent him from beating Edison to patenting the single-lens motion picture camera. I know, it sounds crazy, but keep in mind, Thomas Edison doesn't always have the best reputation in history. As schoolchildren, we were taught that Edison was the greatest inventor in the world. And while Edison was undoubtedly a brilliant man, part of his acclaim comes from the inventions he took credit for, but didn't actually invent himself. Edison was notoriously ruthless as a businessman. He was known to sue people in court to defend his more than 1,000 patents. But one of those details that never gets mentioned in basic history textbooks is that not all the inventions Edison held patents for were actually things he created with his own two hands. Through his career, Edison employed a lot of inventors and scientists, and it's known that he would often take credit for their work and file patents solely in his own name for things that other people came up with. There are several notable occasions where Edison began claiming credit for things that were already invented by someone else. But Edison got the credit simply by beating everyone else to the patent office and then filing lawsuits against anyone who claimed otherwise. For example, Edison often gets credited with inventing the fluoroscope. A fluoroscope, that's the device that makes x-rays possible. The thing is, the actual inventor of the device that allowed people to see a person's skeleton was a German scientist named Wilhelm Röntgen. He was actually able to produce an x-ray image of his wife's hand years before Edison's fluoroscope. But Edison gets all the credit because he held the patent. There are some historians who even claim Edison knowingly allowed one of his assistants, Clarence Daly, to die from exposure to lethal doses of x-rays although plenty of other historians say this account has been wildly distorted. Likewise, Edison is credited with inventing the first device for recording speech. But more than 15 years before Edison patented his phonograph, there was a French printer and bookseller named Édouard Léon Scott de Martinville who created a device that did the same thing that he called a phonograph. But once again, Edison got the patent, so he got the credit. A few years ago, a writer named Ernest Freeberg wrote a book in which he laid out a compelling case that Edison didn't even solely invent the one thing he's probably most well-known for, the incandescent light bulb. Freeberg describes the invention of the light bulb as the work of many scientists over time. But Edison had a real knack for promoting the light bulb as being solely his own invention. Just how ruthless was Thomas Edison? Well, that's a matter of conjecture but there are some other stories about the man that might help illustrate the links he would go to to succeed. For example, it's a well-known story about the long and furious battle Edison had with George Westinghouse over electricity. Westinghouse was a proponent of alternating current, while Edison fought hard to make direct current the standard method of bringing electricity into people's homes. 
Edison went so far as to begin arranging public demonstrations of just how dangerous Westinghouse's alternating current could be, leading to such innovations as the electric chair, as well as at least one infamous display in which an elephant was electrocuted, an event that was filmed by an Edison film crew. There's even another story involving the movie business showing the links Edison would go to to make a buck. One story goes that when filmmaker George Melies was showing off his groundbreaking film, A Trip to the Moon, in London, Edison paid a shady theater owner to steal a copy of the film. Edison took the film back to the United States and produced numerous copies. He started showing the film all across the country and made a bunch of money off it in the process. The problem is that Melies didn't get one dime from these screenings, and by the time the filmmaker arrived in America to show the film, at great personal cost to himself, everybody had already seen it, and Melies was left financially devastated. This event, Edison stealing his film, was said to have driven Melies into a deep personal and financial downward spiral. But despite these many incidents and others like them, it still leaves the question open, was Edison the sort of person to arrange to have a man like Louis Le Prince kidnapped or even murdered in order to stop him from patenting his invention? Le Prince's wife Lizzie and son Adolf, they firmly believed that this is what happened following Louis's disappearance. Just prior to going to see Albert, Louis had been traveling with another couple, the Wilsons. The Wilsons went off to do some sightseeing while Louis went to see his family. They were all supposed to meet back up in Paris after Louis got off the train. But when Louis didn't show up for their meeting, the Wilsons just assumed Louis got tied up with family business and returned home to London. While all this is going on, Lizzie is back in New York expecting Louis to board a ship bound for the States. She expected Louis to arrive in New York on a boat set to dock during the first week of November, 1890. Then, a week before Louis was supposed to arrive, another peculiar incident happened. Someone knocked on Lizzie's door, and when she answered it, a strange man was standing there, and he identified himself only as Mr. Rose. He asked to speak to Louis. Lizzie apologized and said her husband was still in Europe. Louis had long since instilled a sense of caution in Lizzie about industrial spies, so she kept her answers vague. Only this stranger didn't seem to like her response because he became insistent that he had to speak to Louis. He even tried to push his way into the house, but Lizzie refused to let him in. Eventually, the man became frustrated and left. The encounter left Lizzie shaken. On the day Louis was to arrive in New York, he was supposed to be traveling with Lizzie's father, John, who was ill and wheelchair-bound. But when the boat docked and everyone got off, Lizzie was stunned to realize that while her father was there, Louis was not. One of Lizzie's cousins had accompanied her father to New York in Louis's place. When they asked John where Louis was, he for some reason seemed to believe that Louis had been held up on business in Leeds and would be on the next boat to New York. Lizzie sent an emergency telegram to Leeds telling Louis her father was gravely ill and he needed to return home immediately. She also sent a telegram to her brother John in London telling him what had happened and that he needed to find Louis. John went to Louis's workshop only to discover the place locked up tight and Louis nowhere to be found. He began searching everywhere he could think of. He even placed advertisements in the local newspapers asking if anyone had seen Louis Le Prince. He then went to Louis's apartment and managed to convince the landlord to let him in. 
but when John went inside, he found all of Louis's belongings still there, including the motion picture camera, neatly packed up and ready for travel. While this was going on, Lizzie was searching the passenger manifests of every ship that docked in New York around that time. She eventually found the name L. Le Prince on the manifest of a ship that docked that very morning. This particular Le Prince was described as a 27-year-old farmer, but Lizzie suspected this may have been her husband's way of using a false identity to throw off spies. She knew that passengers had to go through the register's office when they exited the ship, so Lizzie rushed to the register's office only to learn that no such passenger had gotten off the boat. The same ship was still at the dock and was due to set sail the following morning, so Lizzie and her son went to the boat and showed around a photo of Louis to the crew, only none of them recognized him. A few days later, Lizzie received another knock at the door. This time, it was a stranger who said that he was selling milk. At first, Lizzie didn't recognize him, but before long, she realized this was the same man who had come to her door weeks earlier, identifying himself as Mr. Rose. When he realized that she recognized him, Mr. Rose dropped all pretenses and demanded that she tell him where he could find Louis. Lizzie told the man to leave or she would call the police. When she began shouting for her children, the man ran off. Things only escalated from there and further convinced Lizzie that there was a conspiracy going on. When she went to the police to report her husband missing, the officer told her in order to start a missing persons investigation, she would actually have to accuse Louis of committing a crime. Lizzie thought this was completely absurd, but the officer insisted that the police only went looking for people who had their mugshots on the wall. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Meanwhile, back in Leeds, John and Albert were more successful in getting both the French police and Scotland Yard to open investigations into Louis' whereabouts, although both departments turned up nothing of value. Then, six months later, another series of events occurred that fully convinced Lizzie and her family that the person responsible for her husband's disappearance was none other than Thomas Edison. First, Edison began publicly touting his latest invention, a motion picture camera he called the kinetoscope. This outraged Lizzie when she heard the news. She immediately headed to the office of her husband's patent attorney, Clarence Seward. Lizzie was horrified to learn that Seward was in court that day. He was busy defending Thomas Edison. So Lizzie tried hiring a different patent attorney, but he informed her that he could not legally represent her to defend her husband's patent since, according to the law, Louis was still alive out there somewhere. She would have to wait a full seven years for her husband to be declared legally dead before anyone would take up her case. Through it all, Lizzie still held on to the hope that Edison was secretly holding Louis captive somewhere. So she and her family began a very public campaign to try and have her husband become the acknowledged inventor of the motion picture camera. She did this in the hope that Edison would be forced to release him. But that never happened. 
The truth is, as much as some historians would like to paint Thomas Edison as some sort of villain, there is, in fact, no evidence that Thomas Edison had anything to do with Louis Le Prince's disappearance. There's even a simple explanation as to why Le Prince's lawyer was representing Edison. Since Edison had hundreds of patent attorneys throughout New York on his payroll, A few years ago, an article began making the rounds online purporting to be from an NYU student who claimed to have found some previously unknown Edison documents. In these documents, the inventor describes how he arranged the murder of Louis Le Prince, but the student from NYU, he was never located, and the story, it proved to be a hoax. In truth, most of the work done on Edison's camera was completed by a scientist in his employ named William Dixon. Dixon eventually quit because he felt Edison didn't appreciate his work. Some historians claim that Edison never saw much value in the movies and never expected them to catch on. But Le Prince's family, they were so invested in their belief that Edison was holding Louis captive that his son Adolf took a year off from studying at Columbia University to travel the world, collecting evidence to prove that his father invented the motion picture camera. He ended up testifying in court for American Mutoscope Company against Edison, who was by then claiming that he was the rightful inventor of the single-lens motion picture camera. Adolf was able to produce a film shot on October 14, 1888, that he said proved his father had invented the camera three years before Edison claimed to have invented it in 1891. He was even able to confirm the date the film was shot because one of the women featured in the film was his own grandmother, Sarah Whitley, and she died 10 days later on October 24th. Adolf then produced the woman's death certificate as evidence. But despite this damning proof, American Mutoscope Company lost the case on a technicality. On January 10, 1888, Le Prince was granted a U.S. patent on his 16-lens camera that he claimed could serve as both a motion picture camera as well as a projector. Around the same time, he took out a nearly identical patent for the device in Great Britain. In both patents, Le Prince proposed related versions of his invention using 3, 4, 8, 9, or 16 lenses. He also added a single sentence mentioning the possibility of a single-lens system as well. But this sentence was eventually removed by the U.S. Patent Office despite Le Prince's objections. This meant the single-lens version of the camera was not covered by the patent, and American Mutoscope lost. This court decision would be overturned a year later, and Thomas Edison would officially lose his title as inventor of the moving pictures. But even after this small victory, things were never right for the Le Prince family. Louis Le Prince would go on to be declared dead in 1897, even though his body was never recovered. This allowed his family to hire a new patent attorney and continue fighting for his invention. But it was a lost cause, because by then there were already several inventors, along with Edison, who had created motion picture cameras of their own. Even though the idea that Thomas Edison was responsible for Louis Le Prince's disappearance remains the most cinematic theory as to what happened to the inventor, it's not the only one. As I previously mentioned, one other theory is that Louis's brother Albert killed him and disposed of the body after a dispute over an inheritance. While there's no real evidence of this either, there is actual evidence that Le Prince was in some very real financial trouble. This leads to another popular theory, that Le Prince made himself disappear to avoid his creditors. 
Albert Le Prince's great-grandson told film historian George Patinier that Louis was on the verge of bankruptcy right before his death. He believes that Louis was growing increasingly dissatisfied with the results he was getting with his invention, and it was costing him a ton of money, driving him deeper and deeper into debt. According to this theory, Le Prince either committed suicide or simply skipped town to avoid his creditors. Another theory suggests that the mysterious Mr. Rose might actually have been Louis's secret lover. In this theory, Le Prince may have committed suicide to avoid being outed as homosexual. But like most of the other theories, there is no evidence to back this up. The last major theory might be the most mundane. It's been suggested that perhaps Louis did make the trip back to Paris. But sometime after getting off the train, he was mugged and killed. Then, when the mugger opened Louis's suitcase full of technical plans, he threw it away because he didn't know what he was looking at. In 2003, a researcher found a photograph in the Paris police archives of an unidentified drowning victim dragged out of the River Seine that some claim bears a striking resemblance to Le Prince, right down to the man's mutton chops. But police records also indicate that the body was shorter than Le Prince's six-foot-four frame. The fact is will likely never know what happened to Louis Le Prince. Although in recent years, some film historians have tried to set the record straight and acknowledged Le Prince as the true father of motion pictures. But most of the history books still give credit to either Edison or the Lumieres. Lizzie Le Prince died in 1925. She went to her grave convinced that her husband's disappearance was part of a vast conspiracy to steal his work. This idea was compounded in 1901 when tragedy struck her family once again. Just three years after testifying in court about his father's invention, Louis Le Prince's son Adolf was found dead under suspicious circumstances. His remains were found while out on a hunting trip in Fire Island, New York. He'd been shot to death. And perhaps even more telling, his face and body exhibited several noticeable bruises, as if he'd been beaten before his death. And even though he was shot, the 29-year-old's death was never officially declared a murder or a suicide. And while Lizzie remained convinced that this was yet another attempt to keep the family quiet, no evidence was ever found pointing to any particular culprit. And Adolf's death remains yet another mystery. The Conspirators is written and produced by Nate Hale, and this week it was hosted by me, Nina Instead. If you liked listening to me this week, check out my other podcasts, Already Gone, which focuses on true crime in the Great Lakes area, and Deadball, tragic tales from the early days of professional baseball. We have new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you, Brigitte, Tom, and Becca. Just a reminder, patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to an ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Another way to support the show and keep it growing is to subscribe, rate, and review The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost the show in Apple's charts and helps spread the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, don't worry, you can find the show on Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. You can listen to the show on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. There you will find our entire back catalog of shows. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Feel free to reach out and drop Nate a line. You can send a good old-fashioned email to theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Nate would love to hear from you while he's recovering. 
Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll be back next time, and please be safe.